Well, we are so glad that you guys are back for week three of a series. The title of the series is called Four. And throughout this series, we've just been saying that for far too long, the Christian community has been known for what we are against rather than being known for what we are for. And that's not okay. Because when Jesus was on the earth, there is one thing about him that is absolutely true. It's undeniable. And it's that Jesus was for people. He was not against people. In fact, Jesus talked about this out of his own mouth. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus is explaining this concept. And this is what he said. He said, the thief comes only... To steal, kill, and destroy. Now, there's some debate about who the thief is. Some people think that Jesus is referring there to a spiritual enemy in your life. Maybe Satan or maybe the devil as he is referred to in scripture. Other people think that Jesus is actually referring to the religious establishment of his day. Specifically, Jewish Pharisees. Regardless of who he was talking about. He is saying that there is a thief in this world, and that thief is not for you in any way, but is against you in every way. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But then he adds this. He said, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have that life to the fullest extent. Okay, So Jesus is making it really clear. There may be some people, there may even be a spiritual enemy that is against you. But Jesus Christ wants you to know that he is for you. We'll look at a lot of other passages today to build out our case. Just so that when you walk out of this service and we walk out of this series, you are never wondering again about whether or not Jesus Christ is for you or against you. And so we started this series just a couple of weeks ago. And in week one of the series, we kind of introduced the big idea, looked at the opening verses of First Thessalonians chapter two. And then last week we started to look at First Thessalonians chapter two, verses seven through twelve. And in these verses, what Paul does is he says, not only is Jesus for you, but I lived my life in such a way that I wanted to be for you as well. Because that's what Jesus followers need to do. Jesus followers not only follow the example of Jesus, but we are the representatives of Jesus in this world. And so if Jesus is for people, that means we have to be four people as well. And so Paul was living his life in a way that made it really, really clear to everyone in Thessalonica, that guy is for us. And so the Apostle Paul uses two analogies in verses 7 through 12. He says one of these analogies is that he was like a mother who cared for her children. And then in the other analogy, he says, I was like a father who corrected his children. Now, I want to say something about those two analogies. One of those will come really, really natural to you, and the other one will be really, really hard for you. Some of you are great at caring for people, but you're not all that great at conflict, so it's hard for you to correct people. Others of you, you have the spiritual gift of correcting people, okay? Let's just say it like that. And so you're great at going around trying to correct everyone in your life, but you're not all that great at showing the people in your life that you also care about them before you correct them. And yet what we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul is that if you are really going to be four people, it's not one or the other. It really is both 
and. You always care before you correct, but if you really care, then you will correct. The Christian community has to be known as a group of people who love people enough that we accept them the way that they are, but we also love them so much that we're not about to leave them where they are in life. This is exactly what you see in Jesus. In fact, think about this other passage that we've referenced several times throughout this series. John chapter 3, verse 17, if you're taking notes. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we've quoted it, but everyone's focused on the front half of the verse. Nobody's thinking about the back half of the verse, right? So what did John say about Jesus in chapter 3, verse 17? He said about Jesus that Jesus, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so we've been looking at that verse going, see, Jesus is for people. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you. But let me ask you this question. Does that mean that just because Jesus didn't come to condemn you for your sin, that he's going to ignore your sin? No, not at all. Because what Jesus is going to do for people is he's going to help them deal with their sin in the healthiest way possible. He's not trying to condemn people for their sin, but he is going to save people from their sin. He he is going to deal with the reality of sin in their life, again, in the healthiest way possible possible. And so if the Christian community is going to be like the Apostle Paul, if the Christian community is going to be like Jesus in that we are for people, then yes, we have to care about people. But then we also have to try to help correct people by helping them deal with their sin in the healthiest way possible. And yet this is really, really hard Not just because it's difficult to correct people, but it's really, really hard because of what we see in the world today. People in the world today look at the Christian community and they primarily think about us that we are judgmental people. It's one of the number one things that that pops into their mind when they think about the Christian community. And so the challenge that we're dealing with today is, well, if you really love people that you don't just care for them, but you're also willing to correct them, then how do you correct them in a way that doesn't make them feel like you are an extremely judgmental person? So I'll take you back to the book, uh, Unchristian. It was written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And, And in that book, I want you to hear what they said as they surveyed thousands and thousands of people who are not Christians. And what did they say about people who are Christians? They said in the book that 87% of non-Christians see those of us who are Christians as judgmental people. 87%. Guys, it's almost unanimous that, that when people who are not a part of the Christian community, who aren't a part of the local church, when they look at those of us who are followers of Jesus, they say, at an almost unanimous rate, those people are judgmental. And it's not just people outside the church who feel that way. There are a lot of people inside the church who feel that way. In fact, the same book and the same research said this, 53% of young Christians between the ages of 16 and 29 see Christians as judgmental people. 
And so here's what I would say. When you look at why is it that young people are leaving the church in droves, by and large, it comes back to this fact. I told you guys last week that when people feel like you are against them, they're going to run from you. But when people know that you are for them, they will be drawn to you. And so for the sake of the young people in our church, for the sake of people in the community who have completely given up on church and they want nothing to do with Jesus or with Jesus' followers, then we have to figure out how to get this right. And in order to get this right, there are a lot of things that we have to think about this morning, okay? We have to get all of these things right. Not, not just some of them, not just one of them, all of them. We have to get the who right. We have to get the what right. We've got to get the when right. We have to get the why right. We have to get the how right. And I'm telling you, if we don't get all of that right, then we end up doing far more harm than good, which is really what has contributed to this problem that we're dealing with, that the world feels like we are against them rather than knowing that we are for them. So let's start with the who. Um, I want to correct a pretty serious misunderstanding that exists in the world today. Um, People don't understand that Christians are actually instructed throughout Scripture that we are supposed to judge people and correct people. A lot of people don't realize that. Now, I need you to hang with me because Scripture not only tells us that we're supposed to do it, it also tells us that there are people that we're not supposed to judge and correct. And so we got to get really clear as we think about who, we got to get really clear on who Scripture tells us to judge and who Scripture tells us not to judge. Now, when you're talking to someone and you're trying to correct them, have you ever heard them say, man, don't judge me? Okay, now let me ask you about that statement. Are they trying to be biblical or are they getting defensive? They're getting defensive, right? They're they're, they're not trying to live out biblical principles in their life. They're, They're getting defensive and they're trying to use these three words that come out of this entire passage and they think only about those three words and nothing else that Scripture has to say about this principle of judgment. So when we think about what are Christians supposed to judge, who do we judge, who do we not judge, let me say it like this. Christians are supposed to judge, but we are only supposed to judge those who are in the Christian community. And I need all of us to understand that. Okay, so when 87% of people outside the Christian community say, I feel like those people are judgmental towards me, that creates a major problem. Because Scripture teaches we're not supposed to judge those people at all. In fact, I'll show you from the text. It's really clear when you look at Scripture that we are supposed to judge people inside the Christian faith, but we're not supposed to judge people who are outside the Christian faith. Look at what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. Who are we supposed to judge? Who are we not supposed to judge? He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Let me ask you, is there a judgment call being made right there? Yes, not a trick question. There are some people who are sexually immoral, some people who are sexually moral. So there is a judgment call being made. 
But then Paul added this. He said, not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about people outside the church, people out in the world. Then he adds this, but now I'm writing to you because I need to clarify that misunderstanding. I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. We're not talking about people outside the church. We're talking about people who are part of the family of faith. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who are sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or swindler, a drunkard, a slanderer or a drunkard or swindler. He says, don't even eat with such people. And then he asks a rhetorical question. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Answer, It's none of my business to judge people outside of the church. Then he asks another rhetorical question. Are you not to judge those inside the church? Rhetorical answer is, yes, you're supposed to judge those inside. And then he says this, God will judge those who are outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, even that passage is a really complex passage because when you look at it, the wicked person among those in the church of Corinth was actually a young man who was sleeping with his stepmom. And so we're talking about really radical sin. And he was not only failing to be remorseful for it, he was actually bragging about it. And so he was running around town telling everybody about how he was sleeping with his stepmom. And it's that kind of person that Paul is going, come on, expel the wicked person from among you. But when you look at the greater teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 to 13, what you see is that Paul is saying, Christians do judge, but we only judge our own. We don't judge people who are outside the Christian community. And yet what's interesting, when you look at what Paul teaches here, and you look at how it's being lived out here, you see that the Christian community is actually doing the exact opposite of what Paul told this church to do. Christians today are great, unfortunately, at judging people outside the church, And we're absolutely terrible at judging and correcting people who are inside the church. And it's because it's a whole lot easier to judge people that you don't know and that you don't have a relationship with than it is for you to judge people that you do know and you do have a relationship with. And so when Paul is saying, this is what it looked like for me practically to be for all of these people in Thessalonica, this last week and then this week, it's getting really, really clear. He cared for everyone in Thessalonica before they became Christian. But then he only corrected those in Thessalonica who became Christian. And this is such an important distinction. I want to show it to you in the text. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, he said this, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. Among who? Among those who believed, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, those who became a part of the Christian community, those who became a part of the family of God. 
For you know that we dealt with each of you, each of you who believed, each of you who were part of the family of God, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And so again, what is Paul doing? Paul said, I cared for everyone in Thessalonica, but I only corrected those in Thessalonica who were part of the Christian family. To use Paul's words out of 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, what business is it of mine to judge those who are outside the Christian faith? Answer being, it's none of our business. And, and I want you to think about this very, very practically. Why on earth would we think that we could hold non-Christian people to a Christian standard? Why on earth do we think that people who don't even know Jesus would actually be able to live like Jesus? That makes no sense. Why would we think that people who don't have the spirit of Jesus living inside of them would somehow be able to live the Christian life? Let's be honest. Those of us who do know Jesus, we are followers of Jesus, and the spirit of God lives inside of us. It's really hard to live out the Christian faith. And so how on earth can we project those expectations on people outside the Christian community when we can't even live up to those standards ourselves? And so I'll say it like this. For those who are part of the Christian community, we always care before we correct. But if we really care, then we will correct one another. Why? Because the goal of the Christian life is not just to know Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is for us to become more like Jesus. And so Paul says, I cared for you by correcting you the way a father corrects his own children. And then he tells us what that looks like. He said this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, I want you to hear what Paul is saying about his life and their life. Paul wants to make it clear, before I ever corrected someone else, I first corrected myself. Before I ever started meddling in someone else's business, I had to get serious about taking care of my own business, which is exactly what Jesus instructed us to do. So let's go back to everyone's favorite verse, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus actually starts the passage by saying, do not judge. But this time, let's look at everything that Jesus teaches about this principle. Matthew chapter 7, beginning of verse 1, he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, Jesus is going to transition a little bit because he knows you're going to judge. So listen to what he says. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? So that's someone who's part of the family. They're part of the Christian community. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank hanging out of your own eye? 
Okay, and then Jesus says this, and this is the, the crux of the matter. He says, you hypocrite. See, Jesus is not teaching that you don't judge other people. He's saying that you don't judge out of a place of hypocrisy. Watch what he says. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So do you remove the speck from your brother's eye? Yes, if you care about them, if you love them, then you absolutely correct them. But you do not do that from a place of hypocrisy. So Paul looked at his own life before he looked at someone else's life, which is why he said that he lived his life among them as holy, righteous, and blameless. The apostle Paul, he first cared for them, and then he set a great example for them. And then and only then did Paul try to correct them. So again, when I go back to this statistic that 87% of non-Christians see us as judgmental, that is so far off base because we have no business judging them in the first place. They are not part of the Christian community. We do not hold them to a Christian standard. We judge our own. We correct our own. And God deals with those who are outside the family of faith. And if we don't get the who right, then they, the world will feel like the Christian community is against them. They will fail to understand that we are for them because of the way in which we act. So we've got to get the who right, but we also have to get the what right. Now, let me say this about the what. It is really, really dangerous to try to make judgments about other people and then correct other people because you don't know their story. A lot of people in the Christian community, they will jump very quickly to conclusions when they have heard only part of the story. And let me just say, you don't know what they did, you certainly don't know why they did it, and you certainly don't know everything that was going on in their life when they did what they did that, that leads to a need for correction. And so because we don't know what was really going on, we need to be very, very careful about stepping into these waters where we judge people and we try to correct people. So say so you know a passage in the book of Proverbs written by the wisest man who ever lived, a man named Solomon, Proverbs chapter 18, Verse 17, this is what he said. He said, in a lawsuit, and so let me ask you this, are we talking about making a judgment call? Yes, we are. In a lawsuit, we're trying to figure out what is right, what is wrong, who is right, and who is wrong. And so in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. And so what's he teaching? He's saying, it's really, really easy for you and me to hear part of the story, to think we know what happened, to jump to conclusions and start trying to correct people. But that would be a mistake. Because when someone else comes forward and cross-examines, when someone else comes and tells you the other side of the story, all of a sudden you start backing up on everything you said because you didn't know the whole story to begin with. Come on. We all know the old adage. It doesn't even come out of the Bible. But we all know that there are two sides 
to every story. And so before we start judging people and trying to correct people, we need to make sure that we understand the what. We need to make sure that we are clear on what happened and why it happened and what was going on in their life. And this right here is why God would say to us as the Christian community, you have no business judging people outside the church. We don't know their story. We don't know what they're dealing with. We don't know what's going on in their life, but he does. He's got all the details. And so he'll take care of people outside the church. And then he says, but you guys need to take care of one another inside the church because as you live in this family of faith, you can actually know what is going on in the lives of one another. So what did Paul say there in verse 11, next verse? He said that I dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. You ever try to parent someone else's children? (laughs) No, you better not because you don't really know what's going on. You don't know what they did. You don't know why they did it. You don't know what they're dealing with in their life. And so catch this, Christians. The number of people that we judge, that circle is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. We don't judge everybody. We don't judge anybody who is outside the Christian community. So the circle just got small. And then we only judge those who are like our own children, where we really know what is going on in their life. So the circle just got a whole lot smaller. We've got to get the what right. Because if you don't know what really happened, then you won't know how to correct what happened. We got to get the who right and the what right. We got to get the when right. Okay. You ever heard the old saying, timing is everything? you you got to think about that before you start trying to judge people and correct people. If you're really going to be for people, then you have to understand that, yeah, you may get the who right, and you may even get the what right. But if your timing is not right, then you will do more harm than good. They make this point really well in the book Unchristian. Listen very carefully to what they say. When to say something and when to stay silent is a tough call for many Christians. I'm laughing at you, not with you, just to be clear. Some Christians, though, make virtually no distinction, feeling they should always express themselves in any and every situation. You know anybody like that? Or they just feel like they need to chirp up and speak into any and every situation. They need to throw in their two cents worth all time, every time. Listen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to learn when to speak and you need to learn when to keep your mouth shut. And a lot more times than not, we need to all just learn to keep our mouth shut because we don't really know what is happening and our timing could be way off. And so before you go to speak to correct or to make a judgment about something, you need to pray this prayer. God, help me to say the right thing. Help me to say it in the right way. Help me to say it with the right spirit and help me to say it at the right time. Our timing has to be right, but also our motives have to be right. We got to think about the why. Why are you even trying to correct someone else in the first place? And be honest. 
Are you trying to correct other people because you want them to know how much you know? Are, are you trying to correct other people and make judgments on other people so that you can put them in their place and, and maybe feel as though you're morally superior to them? Or are you trying to correct other people because you genuinely care about them as a mother cares for her own children and you genuinely care about them as a father who cares about the, his own children, the ones he is willing to correct? The book Unchristian, again, suggests this. An entire generation of those inside and outside the church are questioning our motives as Christians. They believe we are more interested in proving that we are right than proving that God is right. They say Christians are more focused on condemning people than actually helping people become more like Jesus. And so honestly, what's your motive? And I would just say that if you haven't cared for them and you don't care about them, then please do us all a favor and don't you dare try to correct them. That, that does more harm than good. Finally, we got to think about the how, and I want to camp here for just a minute. When the Apostle Paul talks about how he corrected those that he corrected in Thessalonica, very small circle of people, he uses three words, all of which are extremely important because it's not just what you say. It's all about how you say it. Apparently in Paul's day, when fathers would correct their children, fathers in his day, they would encourage, they would comfort, and they would urge their children to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of God. And so I just want to start by saying something to all the dads out there. Dads, don't ever take a day off. I'm not talking about taking a day off from your nine to five. I'm talking about don't you ever take a day off from your job as a father. Your children need you to constantly encourage them. Your children need you to constantly comfort them. Your children need you to constantly be praying for them. And your children need you to constantly urge them to live their lives in a manner that is pleasing to God. Now, this passage extends way beyond the father-child relationship, okay? And so if you're correcting as a parent to a child, great. Take this to, into consideration. If this is a spouse who is trying to correct another spouse who is a part of the Christian family, take this into consideration. If this is a, a friend confronting a friend, someone in a small group confronting someone else in a small group Bible study, take this into consideration. You can try to guilt people into being better, or you can try to inspire people into being better. But here's what I promise you. Guilting people into being better will always make them feel like you really are against them. Inspiring people to be better will always make them feel like you really are for them. 
And so when Paul says that I encouraged, I comforted, and I urged, is Paul condemning them or guilting them into being better? Or is Paul inspiring them to be better? He's inspiring them to be better. Paul was just like Jesus. He wasn't into condemnation. He was all about inspiration. And so if you really want someone in your life to know that you are for them, this is how you have to talk to them. You start by encouraging them. And the reason that you encourage them is because I promise you this, they're already incredibly discouraged. They're discouraged for all kinds of reasons. That that if there's a person in your life who has blown it and they need to be corrected, Okay, think about where they are mentally and emotionally. You think that they're not already beating themselves up if they're followers of Jesus? You think that if you look at their life, they're not battling some sense of discouragement? I promise you they are. They're discouraged over what they've done. They're discouraged over the kind of person that they have become. They're discouraged because they know that they have let other people down, people who love them, maybe even people who depend on them. They're discouraged because they know that people are talking, especially in a small town. And so they're discouraged over what everyone is saying about them and how their reputation is being ruined in a community. People are discouraged for all kinds of reasons. But know this, people are discouraged because there's a spiritual enemy in their life who loves to discourage people. Spiritual enemy would love to discourage every single one of us. Why? Because he is not for you. He is very much against you. And one of the things that he does to get you discouraged is he accuses you all the time. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 actually says of our spiritual enemy that he stands before our God and he accuses the brethren night and day. That's all he does. All night, every night, all day, every day, he stands in front of God and he says, do you know what they did? Do you know the mistakes they made? Do you understand how bad they have blown it? And he is not just in God's ear, he's in their ear as well. And so here's how your spiritual enemy talks to you. Your spiritual enemy starts on the front end of temptation before you ever give in, before you need to be corrected. And he says, come on, go ahead, do it. It's not that bad. And then as soon as you give in to the temptation, the narrative changes. And the story goes from, go ahead, do it, it's not that bad, to instead saying, what you have done is so bad that God can't love you and your life will never be the same again. What's he trying to do? He's trying to discourage you. You cannot be loved by God. God can't forgive what you have done. You have ruined your relationship with God and you have ruined the rest of your life. It's a total attempt at discouragement. And this is what he does. In fact, his name literally means deceiver or accuser. Two names, two different meanings. He accuses people all the time in an attempt to discourage them. So what does Paul do? What does Paul, a follower of Jesus, do when he knows that people are battling all kinds of discouragement? He writes about this in Romans in chapter 7. The apostle Paul goes on this this rant where he says, Why is it that I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I do want to do I don't do? Why is it that the things that I actually hate I end up doing it? He's discouraged. And then what's he do in the very next chapter? Romans chapter 8. 
Top of the verse, top of the chapter, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. End of the chapter, Romans 8, 38 and 39, he's going to encourage, he says, for I am convinced that, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus has an unconditional love for his people that most of us can't even begin to wrap our minds around. And so he uses verses like that to try to encourage people who have blown it. And so when you go into correcting mode, you start with encouragement, but Paul also comforted. Now that word comfort, it means to provide freedom from or to help ease the pain. And so I want you to think about that practically. Because the problem in the Christian community is that we don't comfort people. We condemn people. Which is really, really strange. Because that's not our job. In fact, it's counterproductive to our job. And so when you think about people who are truly followers of Jesus, these people have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. They already feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit over what they have done in their life. And then what Christians do is we come along behind the Holy Spirit and we say, well, there's some conviction, but let me throw on top of conviction a whole big pile of condemnation. As if that's going to make it better. And that's so strange to me because, again, what did Romans 8, 1 say? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you become a follower of Jesus, God says, let me have all of that condemnation that you were feeling. And God takes all your condemnation away. And then God's people say, no, 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 let me help the situation. And we bring all kinds of condemnation back and place an unbearable burden on people. And we wonder why it is that people outside the Christian community and people inside the Christian community feel like we're against them rather than being for them. But we don't need to be condemning people. We need to spend our time comforting people. And so let me ask you, when people in the Christian community need to be corrected, do you say things that add to their pain? Or do you say things to help ease their pain? Paul encouraged them. He comforted them. But he also urged them. He urged them to live a life worthy of God who is calling us into his kingdom and into the presence of his glory. Do not miss that because that's the hardest part, but it may be the most important part. See, a lot of us would love to just go, well, I, I care for people like a mother cares for her children and I correct people in that I encourage them and comfort them, but I don't really want to get into what they did and how they need to change. And so I don't want to urge them to, to live their life in a manner that is worthy of God. And if we do that, what ends up happening is we lead people to believe that it doesn't really matter how you live your life. Let me just make you feel better. And that's not okay. Because that's not what Jesus did. No, he didn't come to condemn you for your sin, but he did come to save you from your sin and to help you deal with it in the healthiest way possible. 
And so Paul said, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm not trying to condemn. I'm trying to encourage and comfort. But I'm also going to urge you to live your life in a manner that is pleasing to God, that is worthy of the call of God on your life. And so let's think about that word urge for just a minute. It's a compound Greek word, parakaleo. Dr. Polhill, who was my uh, Greek professor, he thought I sat in the back and I wasn't paying attention to anything that he said 20 years ago. Okay, But I remember that word, parakaleo. Para meaning beside, kaleo meaning to call. And so all Paul is saying here is that when you urge someone to live a life that is worthy of God, you you are calling them to walk beside the God who is for them. Can I just make something clear? That is not a Bible beat down. That that is not a guilt trip. That is not hellfire and brimstone. That's not taking our Bible and just beating someone over the head with it. All we're doing is extending an invitation to people who have blown it, to people who already feel convicted about what's going on in their life because the Holy Spirit is alive and working in them. And we just extend the invitation and say, come on. Like, like walk beside the God who is for you, the God who loves you, the God who wants his best for you, the God who sent his son Jesus to die for you. And so walk beside him. That may mean that you have to walk away from certain things. That may mean that you have to walk away from certain people. But what you're walking into is an incredible opportunity to walk through life beside the God of heaven who loves you. And so that's how I want to end the series. Because here's what I know. I've talked to some of you. You have said prior to this series, I would walk through the doors of the church feeling like God was against me. And yet you are learning that God is not against you. God really is for you. And so I want to invite you to come alongside. I want to call you to walk beside the God who is for you so much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ into the world to die on a cross for your sins, taking punishment that you and I both deserved. And he gave his son wrath so that he could give us grace and mercy. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he is for you. That's how bad he wants to do life with you. And so if you are not a Christian, become one today. All Christians have done is we have trusted that Jesus Christ really did die for our sins. And we have trusted that he really can lead our life. And we walk beside him as he leads us through this life. But for those of you who are Christians, I want to end the series with my favorite verse of the entire series. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It simply says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's be like God. Let's be for people. Will you pray with me? God, we uh, just thank you for the way your word challenges us week after week after week. And God, throughout this series, it's, it's been eye-opening. It's eye-opening to see who we really are and to see how we really behave and how we treat people and why they feel the way that we do, they do about the Christian community. And so God, uh, we just ask that this would be the beginning of real change. God, for those of us 
who have been living our lives as though we are against people rather than being for people. I pray that the seeds that have been planted in this series would really grow and create real change in our lives. Pray, God, that we would never be against people again, but that we would always be for people. The way Jesus was for people, the way Paul was for people. But God, I also want to pray for those who are not followers of Jesus. God, I pray that they would know that you are for them. And I pray, God, that they would start a relationship by simply trusting in Jesus to forgive their sins and lead their life. And I ask that you do it in Jesus' great name. Amen.